welcome to Here at Haas, a student-run podcast for the Berkeley Haas community. I'm Nick Gerwe, and I'm joined today by Professor Jolt Katona, Associate Professor and Faculty Director of the Fisher Center for Business Analytics at Haas. Professor Katona will also be teaching the core marketing course for the incoming class of 2024 Weekend MBA students. Welcome to the podcast, Professor. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Happy to have you here, and I hope you're enjoying the summer this far. I understand you just got back from a, a trip to Hungary. How was your time spent there? Oh, it wasn't bad. It was the first time in 18 months. We have a three-year-old, so uh, the grandparents needed to see her finally. But uh, otherwise, it was good. Great. Great to take advantage of the opportunities now that travel is a little bit more feasible and make up for those things that you haven't been able to do in the past several months. So maybe just to first dive into your background and maybe before we get to your road to Haas specifically, um, I'm interested just to hear about how you first developed an interest in marketing and business analytics and what sent you down that path. Well, it was uh, pretty random actually. <laughs> so I was studying uh, math and computer science in, back in Hungary and um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that I had an interest in kind of business, economics, all those topics. And then I, I just randomly met one of my brother's friends from military service, and and he was a marketing professor. And he's like, oh, "Why don't you? Why don't you do a PhD in marketing? It's 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 super interesting, and um, it's a, it opens up a new world." So. I, I said, sure, why not? Well, it, it took a little bit longer than that, but <laughs> that's that's the short story. So after getting your PhD, uh, did you move straight into academia or did you spend some time in industry jobs doing different marketing roles or, or business roles? I, I actually got a computer science PhD first and then the marketing PhD, but I never had a real job. It, it's fairly typical, I guess, uh, I would say, 60-70% of the, the professors that, that do research are like that. And then there's, of course, those who have some industry experience. And so what brought you ultimately to Haas? How did you end up teaching at UC Berkeley and teaching MBA students at Haas? So, so that's a that's a very organized uh, job market, actually. Though one of the one of the advantages so there's uh, so many uh, bureaucratic disadvantages of academia, but the way that the jobs, uh, at least in marketing, I mean, there's many other fields, but there's this one big conference. You just submit your um, materials, papers, and you get interviews interviews with schools, and um, they make offers to have whomever they like. <laughs> So that's uh, how I en- ended up. I-, I actually chose Haas above Wharton and Kellogg. What specifically drew you to Haas? What was especially attractive about coming here? So it, it-, it was a t- tough choice, and that was 13 years ago. So it was a little bit different, but I, I guess it was it mostly just the freedom, the f- amount of flexibility that Haas offered in being able to do your research the, the way you want to. and and being very independent in, in how you operate as a, as a professor. So speaking of research, obviously I know you're now primarily focused on marketing, but given your computer science background as well, did you ever dive into computer science specific topics, a combination of the two, or just in general, where's the bulk of your research been at Haas? No, I, I would say that most of my research uh, is, is somewhat related. I, I mean, I do research on 
I like to say that it's an intersection of technology and marketing. Um, most of that is obviously digital marketing and, and social media. So I think I, I cannot deny my past in, in, in that research. As marketing has gotten increasingly digital over the past several years, are there any maybe bad habits or outdated methodologies from past television and print advertising that you still see lingering into digital marketing strategies today? Um, if you asked me this question five years ago, I, I would have said yes, but probably not really anymore. <laughs> I, I, I would say that there's just um, lack of expertise in general. My standard example is just uh, you know looking at attribution of like what causes advertising to succeed. Uh, typical example is retargeting where the ad follows you. Those have very high conversion rates, but those ads target people who would buy anyways. So <laughs> what is the incremental conversion rate? And a lot of people just don't think about this even if they are in digital marketing. And this is not necessarily something that comes from traditional marketing, but it's just a kind of a lack of training and lack of uh, spending time and thinking about these issues. But I, I think digital advertising has, has really opened up a lot of doors for, for, the, for the small uh, businesses and small and medium businesses. And so I know a lot of uh, news recently has been around the monopoly power of some of the Facebook, Googles, and others out there. How do you feel that having such large players in this market affects small companies' access to digital marketing and ability to get recognized versus what might happen if it was a more competitive environment with a number of players? Well, this is, this is a complicated question, so I don't know if you have two or three hours to discuss, but... Uh, the complication comes from the fact that these are two-sided markets, right? So they are monopoly both on the consumer side for, let's take the example of Google for providing the search results and um, on the advertiser side for providing the opportunity to advertise. And the, the kind of the intuitions that apply and, and that have determined uh, policy with respect to, to competition do not necessarily apply to two-sided markets. So I, I think uh, regulators really have to think hard about how to deal with this. I mean, the obvious obvious way to, to uh, deal with uh, big monopolies is to break them up, but that's not necessarily possible with with the type of companies we have. Like, how do you break up a Facebook? Like, are we going to have two Facebooks? And then if we are friends, but we end up in two different versions of Facebook, we cannot uh, communicate with, with each other anymore within the platform. So even just like simple problems like this. So, so even the current, I think the current proposals do not necessarily... Uh, want to break up the, the core services. They just want to regulate how you can buy competing startups and and, and similar issues. So so I do I do not think that they will be broken up in the sense, but obviously there's there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of discussion about how to deal with this the best. And as an academic, uh, I am uh, in favor of thinking hard about it and not doing anything too quickly without understanding what exactly is going to happen. Yeah, it will definitely be interesting to see how this plays out in the next several years. 
Uh, so switching gears into a different paper that you've uh, worked on in the past, I saw you did some very interesting work on satellite imaging for institutional investors and how they're able to access that in order to provide them with more data for large retailers. So could you tell me a little bit about how that research initially came up and what you were ultimately able to come to as conclusions with your co-authors? Sure. So this this is a paper with my uh, colleague at Haas and... Um... I'm I'm kind of a nerd, a little bit. Well, not more than a little bit, and I get excited about like cool data. It's like, well, we can get access to data of satellite images of parking lots of retailers. Uh, so we have to do something with this. And then, kind of the the, the obvious first uh, order question there is like, well, is this data useful? And we got access to data sets from actually the both of the two first companies that created such data sets, they were both startups and they wanted to understand how much value is there in this kind of data. And and if you uh, have heard uh, kind of this anecdote about Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, that he had, he had his pilot's license and he was flying over his stores and then he was looking at the parking lots and activity. So this is not a new idea to look look from above and look at the parking lots, but it turns out that such a simple metric, just counting the number of cars, and this is where technology comes in with some computer vision automatically analyzing the images. So just counting these cars can predict the performance of the stock of the retailer. I mean, it's kind of obvious because more cars, more people, more shoppers, higher revenue. But the way it works out with kind of the, the finance world is that the revenues are announced quarterly. And before that, it's it's all a secret, only the company knows. But if somebody can observe this thing from space, almost at real time, I mean, the lag is like a couple of days, then they get a head start because they can predict what that earnings announcement will be. So they can make trades a couple of days before the earnings announcements and, and make a lot of money. So what we did in this paper at first is just try to figure out how much money you could make. And it turns out that you, you could make a lot of money. Now, of course, this doesn't necessarily hold in the present because we have historical data and and in the early days, there's not a lot of users who traded on this data and there's more people who trade on it. So the, the, the advantage might be washed out, uh, but that was the better the first thing we looked at and it was like 4% return you can get every, every quarter. So it's, so it's a huge amount of uh, money you could make. And next, what we looked at after kind of looking at this very first order question is like, well, who benefits from this? And this gets a little bit more complicated and we had to look at like which companies became available, look at all kinds of trading data, but but all of our results point towards a not very surprising, but uh, somewhat unfortunate result that it's the big institutional investors that benefit from this. Uh, and kind of the small individual investors do not benefit or or, or they, they actually become disadvantaged. And this is not surprising because there's a cost to doing this, right? So the startups have to invest money, get the satellite images, do the analysis, do a lot of data cleaning. So there's, there's value created there. And individual investors do not have access to this data, but big institutional investors like hedge funds can pay the subscription fee of hundreds of thousand dollars per month, and then they can trade on this. 
so this this raises a lot of questions about who should have access to what data, and the SEC is is actively looking into these things. Bigger picture, this is not only limited to satellite images and this type of data, but uh, so-called alternative data sources in finance. It's a, it's a very hot topic from social media to all kinds of sensors. People use that uh, to kind of predict uh, what the stock market will do. Are there any other unconventional data sources to highlight that are maybe becoming more and more common or just interesting ones to pull from that you've seen in addition to satellite information? So I have a favorite example that just sounds so ridiculous. So this was illegal, but uh, there's this guy who drove around Texas in his van and installed cheap IoT sensors, just movement sensors on oil rigs. And he was basically able to measure the activity. Um, I think he, he was uh, found out and um, he was convicted for trespassing, but uh, but it just tells you how much uh, potential there is out there. Um, and everybody talks about like social media and satellite, but but I think there's many many other creative ways to <laughs> uh, to obtain data. Everyone's trying to get ahead, maybe just find uh, more legal ways to do it, but but not a bad idea on the initial thesis. So to turn the conversation a bit to the classroom, away from research, so in particular the marketing classroom that you'll find yourself in later this year, before we get into the details or the structure of the course, can you just set the stage by telling us to you what is the goal of your marketing course and why is it such an important class for MBA students in their first semester as a launching off point to the rest of their education? So it's an introductory course. So uh, the primary goal is that everybody uh, is exposed to marketing, and and it's a little bit different. I I, I mean my experience uh, in the different uh, programs, but in the past couple of years, I have had um, maybe half the people have, who had no idea about marketing, and and they had misconceptions because marketing, to be honest, has has a bad rep. But of course, um, even even those who have some experience, uh, they they will learn. And the the goal for for people who do have the experience and do know more about marketing is is kind of uh, learning how to navigate this field, which is rapidly changing in terms of how much technology there is, how much quantitative analysis uh, there is. But at the same time, there's still a lot of intuition going around. So it's kind of a mixture of knowledge and ability to convince people. And my solution to this is just a strong strong framework and fitting everything into that framework. So that is uh, kind of my, my dual goals for, for the two types of uh, students. Yeah, and I know MBA classes are typically structured a little bit different than you would have an undergrad class, just knowing the audience and the interests of those that are taking it. So could you tell us about, uh, especially to those students who have taken an undergraduate marketing class prior to coming for their MBA, how do you uh, compare the two or, or differentiate the two to make it most valuable for the MBA crowd? So we are going to go a little bit more into into the details, and and that includes going into the details, um, maybe in in terms of learning about the frameworks and learning even some math behind them, but also lo- going into details in terms of application and having case studies. So for each topic, we'll have a case study. We'll have a very detailed discussion about that case study. 
that has two very important purposes. One is that each individual student thinks very hard about the problem and how to apply uh, the frameworks and what we learned. And probably, probably equally important is that uh, each student observes everybody else and how they think about it and, and, and what are the potential mistakes that, uh, that could be corrected and mistaken thoughts that, that others might have or, or uh, very innovative thoughts that others might have. So that's, this kind of comes back to, to the fact that in marketing, you almost always have to convince well, you have to convince consumers eventually, but you you also have to convince first your internal group or or your team, uh, which might be different from from other areas. Also, although it, it applies to many other areas as well. And that collaboration and feeding off each other, I think, is something that we'll be very lucky to get back to this year as we're going back in person for these courses. This is definitely something I'm very excited about with this upcoming semester. Uh, how was your experience teaching remotely over the past year, and how do you plan to change your strategy or maybe pick up some tips from uh, what you learned teaching remotely to apply to this upcoming course back in person at Haas? I, I actually enjoyed that quite a bit, mostly because it wasn't on Zoom, but we used the, our fancy virtual classrooms, which I think were much, much better than Zoom. Uh, so they actually allowed for, I would say, the level of case discussion and discussion was at least 80% of what we would get in the classroom. Of course, we couldn't get the experience of like chit-chatting in the, in the breaks and, and um, meeting up be between classes. So that, that it was definitely lacking. But in terms of what we were able to achieve uh, during the, the class time, I, I, th I think it was fairly close. Now, one, one thing I did is because the, the Saturday classes are four hours, so I thought that would be a little bit too much time in front of the computer. Uh, so I did I did record record some videos, and I put a lot of effort into them because I realized that when I record something, uh, I, I am a perfectionist. So um, uh, I put some effort in that. So I, I think I'm going to use those videos again, and in the upcoming fall semester, and then uh, we'll kind of take advantage of covering that material within the videos and spending more uh, time on discussion during the live meetings. Yeah, I think time in the classroom is always at a premium, especially in a, a part-time program. So getting the most out of that, getting the most discussion and interaction with your classmates is definitely valuable. I took some classes that were primarily on Zoom this past year as well, and I, I did think those supplementary informational lectures were, were very helpful to add to what was being observed in class to really bolster everything and, and make the potential for learning a little bit higher by having that additional content. In some ways, I think I decided that I'm not going to do any kind of lecture style uh, in the classroom anymore that, that I used to do, but that is all outsourced to the, to the recorded videos now. So then with that case-based model, what are some of the, the most popular or the most valuable case studies that you will go over in class? Uh, yes, I, I always try to update them. And um, I, over the years, I have found some uh, really good ones. We'll have one on um, credit cards. Most people are not familiar with it, but, but it's, a, it's a very good exercise for marketing. It's very easy to change the features of the product. So the, the, the Chase Sapphire Reserve, Amex, 
then we have uh, coming back to being me being a tech nerd we have a 3d printer case um, it's high-tech marketing go-to-market well we do have one on uh, that's a very unusual one uh, jumia it's a um, big online retailer in nigeria so instead of like uh, studying amazon which like you know everybody has some opinions about knows um, why not look at the exact same model in a very very different environment and you can learn very valuable lessons from that so switching away from the class in particular and just with the audience of incoming mba students in mind is there any key advice that you would give to incoming mba students especially those in the evening weekend program of how they can get the most out of the program whether it's your course or just the entire haas experience i would say uh Preparation, <laughs> I mean, it sounds boring, but the, if you are properly prepared for a class, you get so much more out of it than if you don't read the case and you just like try to figure out figure it out during the discussion. So that I, I, I do have another self-serving advice, which is that you should not worry about the grades. <laughs> and most, most people do not, but sometimes I, I feel like that is, is not very productive. <laughs> And especially that, you know, there's different uh, topics in classes and, and how grading is done differs, but there's always randomness and, and luck. So worrying too much about that will, will not really help. I would certainly echo that advice. I think that's tough to get away from that kind of undergrad mindset of uh, grades being maybe the most important part, but really focusing in on what you're specifically looking to get out of that class. There's a lot of value that can be found outside of just the, the core grade structure of the MBA experience. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to, to hear your insight and hear your message to the incoming students. Thank you and looking forward to meeting you all in, in October in person. Thanks for tuning in to Hear at Haas. Know a Haasie that has a story to tell? Nominate them on our website at haaspodcast.org. This is Nick Gerwe, and this is Hear at Haas.